Hello and welcome to another week of Diffusion, your favourite half hour of scientific discovery and discussion. I'm Mark West, and this week the Intrepid Diffusion team is going to bring you an absolute Pandora's box of scientific intrigue. A little later on, Lachlan Watmore will have you flying high with tiger moths, and Ian Wolfe will be messing with your brains with his exploration of mind reading. So if you're listening to us in Sydney on 2SCR or across Australia on the Community Radio Network, or you're potting us into your ears anywhere across the globe, sit back and let Vanessa Gardos osmote all the latest science news into your mind. Peer pressure can result in a sex change? Sounds pretty extreme, but this seems to be what happens for a breed of fish called the bluehead wrasse according to researchers from the Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies and the School of Marine and Tropical Biology at James Cook University in northern Queensland. It turns out that social effects are really important to whether a bluehead wrasse becomes a male or a female when it's young, says Dr Philip Munday, who's one of the key researchers. This unusual strategy has developed so that each young fish can increase its chances of breeding within the complicated aquatic social structure. Becoming male is rare at the juvenile stage when there are only a few fish on the reef because there are less chances to breed. This is because larger males seem to monopolise and dominate the reef's breeding pool. However, when the pool gets crowded, it becomes harder for the large males to control so many females, giving smaller males the opportunity to get in there. To make it even more interesting and complicated, some of the large and more dominant males actually start life as a female and change to males when they've grown big enough. Money can't buy you happiness, but it sure can help. Researchers at the University of Warwick, in collaboration with global consulting firm Watson Wyatt, have been looking at just how much money one needs to win in the lottery to have a long-term impact on personal happiness. It turns out that while you don't need to win the jackpot to gain a significant increase in long-term mental well-being, winning small amounts of tens or hundreds of dollars made little long-term difference. Medium-sized lottery wins were the ones that made people the happiest. Wins of two and a half to $3,000 had a long-term sustained impact in the overall happiness of the winners. Loosely translating the data, it means that two years after a win, people were just over 10% happier than the average person without a win, or only a tiny win. Interestingly, the researchers also found that this increased happiness is not obvious immediately after the medium-sized win, and takes some time to show through. This may be due to the short-term disruptive effect on one's life of actually winning the lottery, but most probably because many lottery wins are saved and then spent later. And you're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, the best damn science show on air. Do you know exactly what to buy someone for a birthday gift? Can you read between the lines when the actions of politicians might not match their words? Or do you enjoy a racy novel? Your mirror neurons may be responsible for these abilities. Ian Wolfe investigates. Mind reading is something we do all the time. Not through psychic telepathy but through simulation using mirror neurons. Mirror neurons might also be responsible for language, 
self-awareness, empathy, and self-reflection. In 1996, Giacomo Rizzolatti of the University of Parma found that these cells in the brains of macaque monkeys fire not only when the monkeys genuinely performed an action, but also when they watched another monkey do it. These are the mirror neurons in the frontal lobes of the brain. Dr. Rizzolatti believes that mirror neurons allow us to grasp the minds of others, not through conceptual reasoning, but through direct simulation. By feeling, not by thinking. When you see someone delighted, you feel their joy because your mirror neurons are simulating their emotional pleasure inside you. The mirror neurons were first found in the premotor regions, the part of the brain where you think or imagine doing things before you actually do them. Because of this, it was thought that they were only involved in understanding actions of others by recognising them when you see them or hear them. However, studies published this year have confirmed that they also respond to spoken or written descriptions of actions and that they specifically mirror the intentions behind the actions. This area of science is called social cognitive neuroscience, which aims to understand person-to-person interaction. Marco Iacoboni and his colleagues are subjects to watch video clips of actions and related scenes in a functional magnetic resonance imaging scanner, or fMRI. fMRI shows a live picture of blood flow in the brain, which indicates which parts are active when you're doing a physical or mental task. The first video was of just a hand holding a cup of tea, with no context as to the intention. The second video showed a teapot, teacup and a plate of biscuits, both before and after use, showing only the context. The third video showed a hand holding a teacup in each context, before the biscuits had been eaten, and afterwards when they're messy crumbs, signalling the intention to drink the tea or to clean up. When the action was embedded in a context, the researchers found increased blood flow in a part of the brain known as the inferior frontal gyrus and in the ventral premotor cortex. Increased blood flow is believed to indicate increased neural activity. Ironically, other studies have found that videos don't stimulate mirror neurons as strongly as having a real-life person face-to-face in front of you. The researchers discovered that part of the activity in the mirror neuron system was specifically related to perceiving intentions rather than just watching actions in general. The ability to understand other people's intentions is known as theory of mind and is considered one of the building blocks of social interaction. Showing how the mirror neuron system may be involved in reading others' intentions and desires is an important step in understanding how the brain supports social functioning and what can go wrong in diseases like autism. Studies have found that people who suffer from autism have very little mirror neuron activity. This suggests that stimulating the mirror neurons may help treat autism. We're making models of people in our brains and then running the models through their moves to predict how people will behave. People who know you have a version of you in their head and you have working models of everyone you know in your head. Lisa Aziz Zida, a neuroscientist at the University of Southern California, found that the mirror neurons show the same activity when people read words describing the action as they do when they are actually watching the action. Recently, a woman who had been diagnosed as being in a persistent vegetative state was read some passages about a soccer game. This was controversial because a persistent vegetative state is a deep coma where there's so little chance of your experiencing anything ever again that it's considered ethical to switch off life support. This woman's mirror neurons for running and kicking lit up in the scanner, demonstrating that she understood the words describing the soccer match. Some scientists, such as V.S. Ramachandran, speculate that mirror neurons are a large part of the evolution of language. Healthy people who are very empathic have demonstrated a very high level of mirror neuron activity under the scanner. 
This makes sense. After all, the best way to know how to make someone feel good is to imagine yourself in their place and imagine what sensations you'd like to feel. It's possible that in a social setting where you're modelling someone who is modelling you, modelling them, modelling you, that this results in a hall of mirrors effect, where you're reflecting on yourself and that this is the neurological basis of self-awareness. It may be that the ability for self-reflection evolved as a byproduct of needing to outguess other individuals in your social group who are trying to predict what you will do when you try to predict them. Thanks, Ian. I'd love to know what the mirror neurons of our listeners are making of us right now. Hmm. Amina Menina by the Bees. Have you got a passion for vintage aircraft? Lachlan Watmore just loves them and will now talk about a childhood friend. If I was to ask you what was the most important aircraft of World War II, what would you say? Would you say the Supermarine Spitfire, the famous British fighter? The Boeing B-17 Flying Fortress, the famous American bomber? 
the amazingly tough and mean Ilyushin II Sturmovich Soviet ground attack aircraft. The extraordinarily advanced German Messerschmitt 262 jet or the incredibly nimble and agile Japanese Mitsubishi A6M Zero. In my humble opinion, the most important aircraft of the Second World War, never fired a shot or dropped a bomb, had a top speed about one quarter that of the most obsolete combat aircraft, and almost never went near a battle zone, apart from a small number of reconnaissance missions. The aircraft was the de Havilland DH-82 Tiger Moth, which was the backbone of the British Commonwealth's Empire Air Training Scheme. Before you let a pilot fly a big, sophisticated aircraft, you first have to train him or her on a small, basic aircraft to gain basic aeronautical skills. Just as we crawl before we walk and walk before we run, so a pilot starts training in a relatively simple, slow and reliable aircraft with an aerodynamic stability that will forgive most newcomers' mistakes. Just after World War II, when my dad was 16, he started his training in tiger moths due to a huge surplus of them all over the country following massive wartime production. I'll come to that in a moment, but first, let's have a look at the tiger moth herself. The first thing that strikes you when you look at a tiger moth is the fact that she's a biplane or has two wings. A cursory glance might make you think you're back in World War I looking for the Red Baron. However, the first Tiger Moth didn't fly until 1931 and was the descendant of a proud dynasty of aircraft designed and manufactured by the de Havilland Brothers of England. The ancestor of the Tiger Moth was the DH-60 Gypsy Moth, which came out in 1925. The Gypsy was a legend in her own right. Having been the first aircraft affordable to your average pilot, she opened the door to a golden age of private aviation in Britain and the Commonwealth. Several variants of the Gypsy were manufactured, and in 1930, Amy Johnson flew one called Jason 11,000 miles from England to Australia in 11 days, smashing Bert Hinkler's previous solo record of 16 days. By then, the de Havilland brothers were at work designing the new moth that would replace the Gypsy. The basic airframe would be similar to the Gypsy, a two-seater, biplaned, general-purpose aircraft with fixed tail-drag undercarriage, powered by a single engine with a fixed-pitch, two-bladed propeller. Again, like the Gypsy, the new aircraft would be made largely of wood with a steel internal frame. The skin of the aircraft would be plywood on the cowling engine mount and cockpit and doped reinforced fabric on the wings and tail. However, the Gypsy had a design flaw when it came to bailing out in an emergency. The centerline struts, which held the upper wing, were attached to the fuselage around the forward cockpit, making the pilot look as though he or she was in a cage. This made a rapid exit from the cockpit a bit problematic, so the struts on the new aircraft were positioned further forward in front of the cockpit on the cowling. This then made the two-wing arrangement staggered, or in other words, the upper wing was further forward than the lower. This was good, however it also meant that the aircraft's centre of gravity had moved forward. This was bad. An aircraft's successful design insists that it be balanced around its centre of gravity and centre of lift. To counter this, the wings were ever so slightly swept back. The leading edges of both wings were not perpendicular to the fuselage, but angled aft by a few degrees. Glory, 
With weight and balance problems solved and with a new inline engine with inverted cylinders, the Tiger Moth had been born and she first flew at Stag Lane Aerodrome in the United Kingdom on the 26th of October 1931. She was 7.29 metres long, with a wingspan of 8.94 metres, a wing area of 22.2 squared metres, with an empty weight of 487 kilos and a maximum takeoff weight of 828 kilos, which gave her a maximum payload of 341 kilos, which included pilot, passenger, cargo and fuel. By the time production ceased in 1945, 8,811 copies of her had been built in countries all over the world, including Canada, Australia, France, Finland and Norway. The reason for this, of course, was a bloke called Hitler. When war broke out in 1939, the Empire Air Training Scheme was established to meet the enormous demand for aircrew, and the Tiger Moth became the standard RAF trainer and the trainer for all other Commonwealth Air Forces as well. Gentlemen, you're missing the essential truth. We're short of 200 pilots. Those we have are tired, strained, and all overdue for relief. We're fighting for survival, losing. We don't need a big wing or a small wing. We need pilots. And from all over the world, the pilots came, mainly to Empire training bases in Canada, prompting the American President Franklin Roosevelt to call that country the Aerodrome of Democracy. By war's end, over 130,000 aircrew had rotated through the program, and virtually all the pilots of the program had gotten started on the Tiger Moth. Before progressing on to Spitfires, Hurricanes, Mosquitoes, Lancasters, Stirlings, Typhoons, Martlets, Blenheims, Fulmars, Bowfighters, Swordfish, and a host of other combat aircraft I can't think of right now. By this stage, the Tiger Moth had three variants. The DH-82A, which was the standard version and built in the largest numbers. The 82B, which was a radio-controlled target drone for aerial gunnery practice. And the 82C, which had been adapted for Canadian conditions and had an enclosed cockpit. After the war, there was a huge surplus of Tiger Moths, especially here in Australia, where they had been subcontracted for manufacture. The RAAF sold hundreds of them to private buyers and flying schools, where young would-be pilots like my dad learnt how to fly in them. Like the wartime pilots, Dad would move on to faster, all-metal monoplanes like Cessnas, Pipers, Sundowners and the like, but he always had a special place in his heart for the old DH-82. I know this for a fact because when I was a kid, he built a beautiful flying model of a Tiger Moth with plywood and fabric just like the original and powered by an itty-bitty two-stroke engine. This feature is dedicated to the man who sat me in his lap and let me take hold of the stick. Thanks, Dad. That was Lachlan Watmore remembering a golden age of aviation. If you want to see a picture of a tiger moth, or maybe even have a fly in one, just type the words tiger moth into the search engine of your choice. You won't be disappointed. Now here we go, jumping science, jumping it all over. Like bumping around the town like when you're driving a Range Rover. Been jumping the new science, and I've been kicking the new knowledge. And I'm to a degree that you can't get in college. It's the sound. Of science.
Have you ever wondered what would happen if you locked a man in a room with Bill Bryson's book, A Short History of Nearly Everything, and a guitar? Well, here at Diffusion, we decided to run that experiment just for the sake of scientific advancement. One brave young man, Sam Greenwood, answered our calls for a subject. And here is the result of that experiment. It's a fact. Deal with that. Guinea pigs used to be the size of rhinos. Raccoons were the size and ferocity of bears. Oh, it's a fact. So deal with that. It's a fact. Yeah, deal with that. The moon is moving away from the earth by four centimetres a year. And when it's gone, we are all well and truly buggered. Oh, it's a fact. So deal with that. It's a fact. So deal with that. Blue whales are bloody massive. The tongues weigh as much as an elephant. Its heart is the size of a car and some of its blood vessels are so wide that you could swim down them. Oh, it's a fact, do you deal with that? It's a fact, so deal with that. Your average pillow of about six years old is made up from one-tenth of skin, living mites, dead mites and mite dung. Oh, it's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, so deal with that. It's a fact, you deal with that. It's a fact, deal with that. Ducks, quacks don't echo. Fact. Duck, quacks don't echo. Intrepid reporter Ian Wolfe is going to go out this week and do some experiments and see whether quacks actually do echo. In any case, that was Sam Greenwood, long-time listener, first-time contributor. It's a fact, deal with that. Sadly, it's time to say goodbye from all of us here at Team Diffusion, or as I like to say, Team Awesome. If you'd like more information on any of the stories we featured today, if you want to tell us how wonderful we are, or if you just don't have any friends, email us at diffusion at 2SER.com. Warming the seats on this week's show were Lachlan Watmore, Ian Wolfe, and Vanessa Giles, whilst Diffusion was produced by the Midas Touch of Tilly Bullion. Diffusion is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network and all over the world through our podcast. So search for us in iTunes or grab the feed at feeds.feedburner.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Mark West, and I hope you will join us next week for more climactic science on Diffusion. That was a good drum break. Pick yourself up off the side of the road with the elevator bones and your whip flash tones. Members only hypnotizers move through the room like ambulance drivers. Shine your shoes with your microphone blues. Your suits with
with your parachute boots Passing the Gucci from coast to coast Like a man get real soon Yeah. 